Um, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I usually do uh, the bulk of the preaching, and then I do such this morning. So if you guys have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at one verse, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand and keep it raised high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. And if you are um, receiving one of the Bibles we're handing out, please keep it. If you don't have a Bible for yourself, this is our gift to you so you can have it. If not, and you just forgot a Bible, go ahead and leave your hand up, and then you can take a Bible today and just drop it off um, on the shelf on your way out. You should be in page 616, Romans chapter 12. So let me just kind of catch you up again to where we've been. Um, not in all of Romans, we don't have that much time, where we've been for the past three weeks. And that is, starting in Romans 12, verse 9, what we started to do is go one verse at a time. And the reason why we did this is because Paul began to talk about what does it look like and what ought it look like when we live in Christian fellowship. So what does it look like for us to live a life for Christ uh, in community? And so we have this mini-series on love, and it started in verse 9 when Paul says, Let love be genuine, which we said a few weeks ago means to be unskilled or unpracticed in the art of acting. And with that, it says, get rid of that which is evil and cling to that which is good. And then last week, the residents who did an incredible job at preaching all day, they came back and taught in this genuine love that we should have brotherly affection for one another and that we should be able to outdo one another in love. And then today, Paul, with one verse here, says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, and serve the Lord. What I'm excited about for this text is this text is really talking about what does it mean to have passion for Jesus? What does it mean to live for Jesus? And oftentimes we've heard that before, especially if you've grown up and around um, in church for some time or you grew up growing to maybe youth uh, ministries or um, whatever they were called, junior high ministry, high school's ministry, student ministries. You've heard the phrases, uh, be on fire for Jesus or be passionate for Jesus. And usually what happens is no one even knows what the heck that means, right? And so we leave it up to the imagination for some six-year-old kid. And what that means for them is buy as many David Crowder CDs as you possibly can, um, as much witness wear as you can and just live a very awkward life, right? And then you turn 19 and you're like, I don't want to be a Christian anymore, right? I think part of the reasons why people go to, go to college and they lose their faith is because they were like, dude, that, uh, that was bad. It was a bad time for me. Um, my wardrobe was all bad. The music I listened to was kind of weird and, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be normal again. So anyways, we're going to try to talk about what that looks like to have passion for Jesus. What does it look like to live for for Jesus um, in the short time that we have today. Um, just to let you know from the sake of structure what we're going to do. This text, this verse, is not hard to understand. Uh, meaning, it's, it's not something we need to spend the bulk of our time explaining this particular text. It's not like we went through Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9 and talked about these huge theological concepts like justification, sanctification, predestination, election. Thank goodness we're done with all of that. This is different, right? This is, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. And so it's not so much what does it say. The hardest part of this text is how do I live this? How do I live this out? And so what I want to be able to do is just explain and look at the verse, uh, mainly three words that I believe that we need to define in this verse, and then spend the bulk of the time practically saying what does it look like for us to live this way? What ought we to be doing to live this type of love, this genuine love that shows itself in zeal and being fervent in the spirit? So let's deal with these few words. Um, the first word that I want you to look at here in verse 12, verse 11, Paul says this, do not be slothful in zeal. So the first word is sloth. And, and that word sloth is something that you, you might have heard before. And the reason why you probably heard the word sloth before is because um, most of us are familiar with the seven deadly sins, and it's one of them. 
Um, we usually say it's being lazy. Don't, don't be lazy. But it's far more than that. It's far more than just being lazy. Um, slothful in itself um, is best, I believe, one of the best pictures of this is uh, there's a book called Reordered Loves by a guy by the name of David Noggle. It's really good. And he begins to talk about slothfulness. And here's what he says. He says, it's our, lack of, our lack of love for God can make us spiritually lazy, morally negligent, and intellectually idle. Slothful people forget church, avoid scripture, refuse repentance, rarely pray, reject fellowship, don't witness, scorn theology, evade thought or meditation, and in general are repulsed by religion and the religious life. Sloth believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, remains alive, for there is nothing it would die for. Sloth, then, is a sin of omission in that it fails to find God supremely significant and attractive, so as to pursue him enthusiastically. Now, here's why I wanted to pause on sloth. If we just go, oh, sloth is laziness, and we move on, we think we know some people like that. What I'm trying to get you guys to see is you're like that. That at some moment in your life, right, as Christians, what we do, those of us in this room who follow Jesus, now, I acknowledge not everybody in this room is a fall of Christ. And every week when we gather, there's plenty of people who don't yet know Jesus, and we're just glad you're here. But talking to the people, those of you guys who trust in Jesus, many of us, we live our Christian life in the rearview mirror. Meaning looking back to an experience we had in college, an experience we had in high school, some moment, some season, but not really trusting in the transforming grace for, for, from God for us now. And, and when you saw that definition um, of what it means to be slothful, some of you probably thought either now or, or, or last week or at some point you could have said, that's talking about me. And so I don't want to rush through this super quick other than to say this, this, is, this word matters. It's not just being lazy. It's having apathy and not, not looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith and having a consistent awe of who he is today. Not yesterday, not last week, but today. So that's the first word. Well, Paul continues here in verse 11. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Um, and when it comes to zeal here, what he's talking about here is that word passion. It's want to. It's want to. Let me just give you a picture of this. I don't know how many of you guys watch the Little League World Series. Um, you guys are like, I don't check out 12-year-old baseball. Whatever. I do. <laughs> and I haven't got a chance to follow all of it, um, but I got a chance to watch some games yesterday. I'm just telling you, this was amazing. And what the best part about it was that one, team, one of the teams lost uh, Rhode Island. And then when the little Rhode Island little, little, little leaguers, they lost. Their, their coach started talking to them. One of the best speeches in the history of, of Earth, right? And so... He gets on his knee, and he talks to these kids, and they're crying. You know, they lost these little 12-year-old boys. I mean, they love this sport, and he is just passionately communicating them. I don't care if you know nothing about sports. If you know something about love and passion, you'll see this guy just on the knee saying, I love you guys. I'm, I'm glad you're here with that New England accent. You know what I mean? You know that accent? I, I'm not even going to try to do it, right? And, and he's like, I love you guys. And he goes, you know why I'm going to share it a lot of tears? Because I'm never going to coach you guys again. And you're never going to play again. But you guys are champions. And he just kept going and going. And, like, and, I, and I tend to do this. And I'm trying to keep it in. And my wife's next to me. And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> and I look over and she's like. <laughs> and like our kids are like, what are you crying for? And it's like, you guys don't get it. You don't get it. And what it is is we're drawn to passion. 
So we have slothfulness as saying being lazy and not having any apathy, but then you have zeal, or having apathy. Zeal is that want to. And the want to is something you can't coach. You talk to anyone who's ever coached a sport, they'll say we can't coach height, we can't coach speed, we can't coach appetite. Meaning I can't make you grow, I can't make you faster, I can't make you more athletic, and I can't make you want to play this sport. It's the same way in following Jesus. I think our agnostic and atheist friends, they have it right when they say you cannot force your religion on me. And we can't. We can't make you want Jesus. There's not a sermon that can make you want Jesus. We can provide the context. We can provide the environment. But we cannot coach, so to say, want to, desire, zeal. That is something that has to be born of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, don't be slothful in this type of zeal, meaning just, just don't just kind of coast it when it comes to knowing and following Jesus. Don't just get the ball rolling at some point in your life when you made a decision for Christ and just kind of let that ball roll without any activity in pursuing him. So you have slothfulness, you have zeal, which is want to or appetite that comes from God. And the third word here is he says, but be fervent in the spirit. That word fervent comes from the Latin word fervent, which literally means to boil. It means to boil. It's where people get phrases like, be on fire for God. Because if you, most of us have boiled something, we've cooked something, whether it's top ramen or whatever, we've been there, right? Is that you put water in a pot and you put it on a stove or you put it over fire and over a period of time it begins to boil. And he's saying be fervent in the spirit, meaning be around God, be near God, near the presence of God over a period of time and watch what the Spirit begins to do in your life in terms of looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Continuing to have that awe for who God is, even in the midst of dryness or uh, desert moments or valley moments. Um, and what, so what Paul is communicating here is that when it comes to this type of life of not being slothful in zeal, but being furthered in the spirit in which we can serve the Lord, he, he's saying on one hand, you do need to have intellect. You've got to know something about God. You've got to know who he is and who he's revealed himself to be in the gospel. So don't check your mind at the door. Bring that with you. But on the other hand, he's saying that you need to have emotion. That the truth of who God is and what he's done on your behalf in Christ Jesus, in spite of you, because he loves you, when that begins to filter into your emotions, you bring your emotions too. So it's not one or the other. It's having a passion. It's having a zeal for God. And so what Paul is saying in this verse is, be passionate and live a passionate life for Jesus. But like I said before, that's not hard to understand. The hardest part is, how do I live this? What, or better question. What happens when I don't have that passion? What happens when I don't have that zeal? What do I do when I feel like my heart's cold? What what if the reality of it is I'm living my life, my Christian life, my walk with Jesus, and the rearview mirror is now? Some of you married couples, you know what that's like spiritually. You know what that's like in your marriage. They usually go together. You go, remember when we, remember, let's put out the, the wedding photos. Remember, remember, and it's like, yeah, that's really good. But what about now? What about his transforming grace today in my life? And so, so how, do we, how do we get there? Let me just say this, too. This is not something just that Christians go through, normal Christians, every Christian. There's not a man, there's not a woman in this room who's not had a moment where they've been distanced from God. There's not a man or a woman in this room, myself included. Some people think, well, you're, you're a pastor. Like, this must come easy to you. It's like, no. Why do you think that? I'm, I'm saved by the same grace that you're saved by and by the same Holy Spirit. It, there's, not an, there's not another Holy Spirit given for, pa- for pastors and stuff. It's like, oh, give them the normal. Oh, get the other one, the big one. Yeah, bring him, right? 
No, right? One God, three persons, the same Holy Spirit. And, and I say that because the reality of it is with pastors and most um, pastors, ministers, wherever you call them, this becomes a tool, right? And, and, and though this is a moment in which I can read, I can hear about God, and it should be always uh, devotional, the reality of it is every single week i got to prepare something to give to you guys. And so if I'm not careful, this becomes a tool. Like the math teacher, um, the math book becomes a tool to them because they, they teach math and they love it. I've never heard the math teacher, no matter how good he or she is, goes, you know, every morning I get my book, my math book, about 10 minutes, cup of coffee, give myself to algebra. <laughs> and uh, every day I'm like, whew. Whew, right? I'm doing 15, up to 15 minutes now, right? That's never the case, right? And so what happens is, for myself personally, I can't speak up for all the other pastors, is myself personally that, that my daily routine or my daily disciplines in the Lord can become cold, where I feel like it was no different by reading the Bible than it was reading Mark Twain. Uh, I don't mean read Mark Twain, or something like that, right? Like, it, there's, there's no difference in those things. And so my heart can become cold. My marriage can become cold if I am not actively pursuing Jesus, it's real, okay? So this is not for um, just normal people. This is not for people who are in ministry. This is for anybody who's breathing that follows Jesus. Is going, how do I get my passion back? For some of you, how do I even establish it? How do I sustain it, etc. And so what I'm going to do is just do four practical things of how to live this verse out, how to grow in our passion and our zeal for Jesus. First thing we're going to talk about is that you've got to acknowledge what you can't do. We'll talk about what that means. Number two, do what you can do, meaning there's some things that you should be and ought to be doing and to grow your zeal and passion for looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Number three is serve God by serving others, meaning you got to serve people. You got it. The way you serve the Lord is by serving, serving others. And again, we'll explain this. And then number four is realize it's not about speed, it's about pace. And we'll walk through these things. And so let's look at this first one real quick, is acknowledge what you cannot do. It says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in the spirit. And if being fervent in the spirit literally means to boil, and it means that the way that we get this passion is we got to have some boiling in our life. Um, understand this, water cannot boil itself. It can't. Water can only boil if you place it over fire or over a stove. If you apply the heat to the water over a period of time, then the water can boil. Water in itself cannot boil. In the same way, as a Christian, as someone who's exploring Christ, you cannot give yourself passion. Hear me. You cannot conjure passion. It doesn't mean that you need to be loud. It doesn't mean you can just do a bunch of stuff and then you're passionate. You can give the appearance of passion. You can give the appearance of following Christ, but you cannot initiate that. That is something that is God-born, God-driven, God-given. It can only happen by his grace. So we acknowledge what we can't do. That's always the very heart of Christianity and how we become Christians, and that's always the heart of how we grow as Christians is acknowledging what we and in, in ourselves cannot do. So it's not dig deep. It's look up. Look to God. Look what he does. Because the reality of it is, many of us, because we know some things about Christianity, what we want to do is start getting to work immediately. Let me just start doing better things. Let me start going to church more. Let me start doing, 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 doing. And you're exhausted because you're on the spiritual treadmill running nowhere going nowhere, and yet you're exhausted. Sometimes you can feel good, but the reality of it is you're not resting in his grace. 
In fact, there is um, a letter that, Paul, uh, that uh, Jesus writes. It begins to speak to these seven churches in the book of Revelation. Some of you are somewhat familiar with that. And he gets to uh, Revelation chapter 3, and he begins to talk about this church in Laodicea. And, and Laodicea, uh, some of you have heard this before, but Laodicea, he goes, man, I know your works. Meaning, I know you're actually doing good things. But he gets to the heart of it, and he says this, I know your works, I know who you are. He goes, you're neither hot nor cold, you're neither, you're lukewarm, and since you're lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth, meaning you make me sick. And when Jesus says that, that's not good. And so um, let me just explain what, what, what he's talking about there, because a lot of times when this text is taught, it, it gets taught in a way that I don't think is very helpful or, or, or true, um, sometimes I should say. And that is, usually you hear someone say, you know, Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one. He's saying, Jesus wants you to either be on fire for him, like hot, or completely against him, but not lukewarm. And I'm going, I don't think he wants you to be against him, right? That, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem right. He's like, be against me, right? That, no, that, that's never a command that for Jesus says that. If you understand the context here in Laodicea, Laodicea was a city not too far from Rome. Um, in this particular city, there were, like in any city, there were springs. There were hot springs, which were, had their purpose for, for, for things, like you think of things like a spa or something like that. And then there was cold springs, you think of a swimming pool, that had its purposes, its uses. And then he says, but you're lukewarm. I spit you out of my mouth. And what many people would say from a geographical, historical perspective is that the sewage system from Rome to Laodicea, they had water issues. And they could always tell newcomers when they came to Laodicea because they would drink from this particular spring, and the spring in itself was all bad. And newcomers would lap it, drink some water, and immediately go and spit it out, saying, here's the imagery here, is that this lukewarm is not what you want. Everything else, hot or cold, has its uses. I mean, from a practical perspective, most of you who drink coffee, we go to a coffee place, we say, can I get a hot such and such, or can I get an iced such and such? We never go, can I get a lukewarm, not good tasting that? <laughs> can I get that real lukewarm, ice melted and everything, right? No, never. Like, we don't, we don't we usually want that. What Jesus is saying is, but you're lukewarm, meaning you're not hot nor cold. You're, not, you're doing stuff, but you're not useful because it's not born out of love. He says, you've lost your first love. So you have to acknowledge what you can't do. You can't create that love. We don't just love God and then he loves us. We love God because he first loves us. It's his initiating love, his grace in our life. We acknowledge we cannot create passion. We cannot create the love. God has to, and he does. In fact, as he continues in Revelation 3 and talking to the church in Laodicea, he says this in verses 19 and 20. To those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. He's saying, even after all of this, even though your life in itself, I'm, I don't like it, he goes, but because I love you, I will reprove, I will discipline you. Be zealous, that same word. Have an appetite and desire. And he goes, and I'm here at the door. And if you open up, I'll eat with you. This is a picture of fellowship. It's a picture of God saying, I want to be in your life. I want to take permanence and residence in your life. There, there was a professor I had when I was pursuing my master's in, in, um, in urban theology and leadership. And what this guy did for a living and what he still does is he, um, he leads a ministry to homeless kids on the streets in Seattle. And so he finds himself eating a lot with a lot of these kids. And so he meets this Ethiopian kid um, who's on the streets and he says, hey, tell me the best Ethiopian restaurant in the city that I can go to. Like, true, authentic, 
uh, Ethiopian food. And so the kid shows him where it is, and he walks him there, and he goes, okay, why don't you come eat with me? And he goes, you don't want to eat with me. And he goes, no, I want to eat with you. And so the kid shows him his hands, and his hands are all scabbed up and blistered and bleeding from just living on the streets. And he goes, you know, with Ethiopian food, you eat with your hands, and we share it. Like, you you really don't want to eat with me. And the professor says, I look at him and says, no, I I want to eat with you. And um, what Jesus is talking about here, just show me your hands. Uh, He doesn't care. He says, "I, I can see all the scabs on your heart. I can see the dryness. I can see where you've walked away. I can see where you're cold. I can see where you're slothful. I can see all those things. But first, in in establishing and sustaining and growing your zeal and passion for Jesus is first acknowledging that you can't and realizing he's the one that stands at the door with his grace and says, open the door and let me eat with you. Let me eat with you. I want to dine with you because, like you said before, because I love you. Passion in itself doesn't just start by activity. It starts from Jesus and his love. We love him because he first loved us and he gave himself for us. Amen? And so we acknowledge that. That's, that's how you establish a relationship with Jesus. That's how you grow in your relationship with Jesus, how you sustain your relationship with Jesus. It's really about God and his grace, and all we can do is respond to that. And the first thing we do as a young Christian, as an exploring Christian, as a mature Christian, is acknowledge I need God's grace in my life that he would eat with me, though I cannot clean myself up. And so we acknowledge that. First, we acknowledge what we can't do. Number two is, once we realize that, we acknowledge, or excuse me, we do what we can do. We do what we can do. If, it, if, if it's by Jesus, by being close to God, we acknowledge, right, that it's his fire that begins to allow the water to boil. So our spirit to begin to be shaped and formed and transformed to look more like who Jesus is. And to look more like who Jesus is, that we are not being slothful in our zeal, but we can become fervent in the spirit to serve the Lord. But there are things for us to do. Oftentimes when we talk about grace, many of us just think it's just um, limited to God's ability and desire to forgive us of our sins. And then we move on, not understanding that grace is far more comprehensive than that. That what God is doing is he is reestablishing and recreating the image of Christ that we have, but sin begin to mar. Meaning he is refashioning and shaping us to be who God has created us to be in Jesus. And so grace does forgive us of sins, but as Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, he says, but it's the grace of God that is training us to renounce ungodliness, to continue in good works so we may look like and image Jesus. Meaning there is a reality of grace, a power of God's unmerited favor that makes us do and live in such a way that we are reminded and draw ourselves back to the fire. Think of it this way. Um, Many of us start on the fire in Christ Jesus. We understand his grace. If the pot's on the fire, and that's where the boiling is, is that we take our life, our pots, and we move elsewhere. We're drawn to other things. Our affections are completely wavering, and we find ourselves getting cold. And so there are things in which we do to bring ourselves back to the fire. Those things are often called spiritual disciplines, or depending on what denomination you grew up in, means of grace, um, quiet times. I don't care what you call them. They're things that we do that a follower of Jesus does in order to place themselves before the fire who is God. Meaning, there are things in which we do. They in themselves are not grace, but they're activities in which we can do in response to grace to get our lives to recalibrate, to redirect, to refocus our position, ultimately to receive all that God gives us in his grace. So 
means of grace, spiritual disciplines, wherever you want to call them, and there's plenty of things. There are things like giving. There's things like attending a, a worship service, things like Bible reading, etc. Here's what we always say. Three things. Three things that a Christian, a follower of Jesus, needs to be doing regularly. Not just acknowledging what you can't do, but doing what you, you can do, and that is that you have to expose yourself consistently, daily, often, to God's word, you got to, to, to God's word, to God's spirit, and to God's people. So here's what Paul says first regarding God's word. In, in, in uh, Colossians chapter 3, I believe it was verse 16, yeah, it says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, or psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Look at that first part. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That literally means don't just, don't just have your, 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 um, the word of God um, in, in a Bible app in your phone or in a book that you carry, but let it be in your heart. Let it take residence in your life. I mean, study it. Memorize it. Know it. Get to know who God is through his word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know why? When moments of temptation come, you're ready because the spirit will take what's already in you, the word of God, to use it. When the lies of this world, the lies of Satan, the lies of yourself, that you can have truth to be able to combat those things. It's God's word. It's also God's spirit. Paul says this in, in Ephesians to the, the church in Ephesus, chapter 5, verse 18. He says, do not get drunk off wine or with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. He's saying, you know what it's like to be drunk off wine? You know what it's like to have it take you over? for you to do things you wouldn't normally do, say things you wouldn't normally say, call people you wouldn't normally call, <laughs> right? He says, but the opposite of that, what you should do is be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Place yourself before the Spirit of God and say, fill me, Lord. Fill me. And, and hear me when I say this, guys. Oftentimes, we want a burning bush experience, and God may give you that, and we think being filled with the Spirit usually is just kind of an emotional roar, and sometimes maybe it is. But people always say, well, what do I do to, to grow in the Spirit? What do I do to be filled with the Spirit? How do I live an, uh, an empowered life by the Spirit? Here, it's really simple. Do what God's called you to do. Just obey God. Because when you start to do what God's called you to do, if you've got something to confess, confess it. If he's calling you to give, give. He's calling you to serve, serve. Wherever he's calling you to love and who he's calling you to love, love. Do what he's called you to do, and then he will empower you to do his ministry. We've got to understand, the primary role of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in our life, the primary is to convict us of sin and of righteousness. Meaning, convict us of sin that we are doing, that's sins of commission, and then things that we ought to be doing but we're not, that's sins of omission. And then it says, convict us of righteousness. That's how we should be living, Godward and loving God, and then also world, and, and the world, I mean, loving our neighbor. That's caring for the least of these, caring for the under-resourced, caring for the people in the church of God, caring for people who are outside the church of God, the way we, we treat and the way we enter into our vocations, all of life being for Christ. It's saying these are the things that the Spirit is doing. And so you want to live a Spirit-empowered life? Listen, pray and do what God calls you to do. Just look at His Word, trust in His Spirit, be filled with His Spirit, and do what God calls you to do. And watch the empowerment and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And the last one here, when it comes to doing what we can do, is it's God's word, God's spirit, and be with God's people. Be with God's people. That is being together when we worship, but also being in each other's lives. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3, 12 and 13. He says, take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's what he's saying. Exhort one another. Keep this up for a second. I love this. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. I love that he says that because like every day, well, when? When it's called today. Well, that's today. It's kind of redundant, but he's trying to get the point across, right? Like be with people, text people, call people, um, love people every day so that we may not be hardened. That's everybody, pastors included, right? That we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is very deceitful. You know, one of the, you know one of the main ways that sin is deceitful in our life is when it begins to tell us that we're okay. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm good. I'm okay. No, you're not. You're not. It's a lie. We're never really okay. That's why we need to rely on his grace and rely on his spirit, rely on his word, rely on his people. These are the means of grace that God gives us in order for us to truly be right before him in Jesus Christ. That we need his people because the reality of it is, you know what it's like for us, our walk and our passion and walking for Jesus and walking in Christ. It's, it's, you ever been, you guys have had this experience where you're driving that gas light comes on? You don't pull over and go to the gas station. You're calculating, okay, it came on here. <laughs> it's a hybrid, um, right? And so how, how far can I go? True story. So we're on vacation. We borrowed, uh, we were staying at my, my in-law's house and we borrowed their truck and um, we were driving, me, me, me and Holly were out on a date, and their, her dad's pickup truck, which is like, like 16-year-olds, basically. And um, we're driving, and the gas light comes on. I'm like, we're good. And so we were in, like, her parents live in the suburb of, of Sacramento, and we're in the city. And I was like, oh, we got time to get back. And she goes, you sure? I'm like, yeah, because I'm thinking about our car. The thing about it is we do have a hybrid, and so that, that gas light stays on for years. And so we, we are driving, and then all of a sudden it's like, kong, kong. I'm like, uh-oh. And we're on the freeway, and I'm like, oh, no, this thing's, this thing's going down, right? We pull over. Here's what was embarrassing about it. Just like 16-year-olds, we had to call her dad <laughs> and be like, we're on the side of the freeway, and we need you to bring us some gas. How come we didn't put gas in the car? Because we didn't put gas in the car. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, and so sure enough, her dad comes, and, and I say, I can help you. No, no, get out of the way. And like, you know, it's like. You're going to take my daughter and get her on the side of the free, you know, just all that stuff, right? It's like, uh, <laughs> I'm 31 years old, man. I don't know how to put gas in the car. I just forgot. <laughs> the picture of that is, as funny as that story is, is um, many of us won't pull over and ask for help, and we're running out. That's the deceitful heart. That's the hardened heart. We need his word. We need his spirit. And you know what? We need each other. We need each other. The way that we grow in zeal, the way we grow in passion, that we're not slothful in this type of zeal, we're fervent in the spirit to serve the Lord, is acknowledging what we can't do, that God stands to give us his grace. It's it's doing what we can do, and then number three, it's serving God by serving others. (laughs) Serving God by serving others. It's really really simple. Um, At the latter part here of verse 11, it says, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. And sometimes when we hear that, we go, serve the Lord means a call in the ministry. No, no, no. I think we've debunked that a little bit, right? Serve the Lord means wherever you are, wherever you at, whoever you are, in Christ, serve somebody. We can't see God. We can't wrap our arms around God. So what it means to serve God is to wrap our arms around somebody else, tangibly, to serve the people around us, to care for those who no one wants to know. 
not just walking past people and saying a prayer, as James says, and as I hope everything goes good for him, stopping, redirecting our entire lives for the sake of the other because Jesus redirected his entire life for the sake of us. That when it comes to serving the Lord, that serving the Lord means literally getting our hands and our feet messy to be able to serve the people around us. And just practically speaking, how this relates to us growing in zeal and growing and being fervent before the Spirit, there's a huge church in the Chicago area called Willow Creek. And Willow Creek did this study amongst thousands of churches to see how people grew, meaning how they grew in their spirituality, how they matured in their walk with Jesus. And what they found in this book they had called The Reveal is that all the programs and stuff that a lot of churches do really don't help in growing people. They're, they're really good at getting new Christians and new uh, followers of Christ in the door, but in terms of growing people, a lot of that activity wasn't working. And so they, they, they did a book called Reveal. And then they wrote more books and studies on it, and they, the last one was this one called Move. Very, very fascinating book. And the book Move begins to talk about from the, they have the stages, so like exploring in Christ, Um, knowing Jesus, growing in Jesus, and then being Christ-centered. And he says, around the spectrum, basically three things showed up. Continuing to be regular in Sunday attendance, um, being in a small group, or we call them redemption communities, but the one that stuck at the top as they interviewed thousands and thousands of people of their walk with Jesus was serving. And usually serving at your church. Then it was ser- from there, they would serve at their church and then serve in their community, and then maybe they would start a different ministry. But from someone who was getting to know Jesus, who wasn't even a follower of Christ yet, to the most mature followers of Jesus would say, it was serving. It was giving my life for the other. Some of you are going, why am I so cold? It's because you only think about yourself. And here, you have an idea of what selfishness looks like. You go, well, I know someone who's selfish, but you don't think of yourself. You, you know it because your eyes are turned on yourself. Sometimes selfishness shows itself in being able to look at everybody else's faults but not clearly being able to see yours. Sometimes selfishness shows, well, they're worse than me and so I'm doing okay. It's because you're only thinking about yourself. Selfishness for me and for all of us shows itself in the way we complain. Complaining is a pastime for us. See what it would be like instead of the complain and give Thanksgiving. Just, just go a day. I won't even say go a week. Go before lunch. Um, <laughs> And try to, try, to, try to just be thankful instead of complaining. And so you serve God by serving others. The last thing that we have here is, uh, is realize that it's not about speed, but it's, it's about the pace, right? You can acknowledge that what you don't have and what you can't do and see God's grace. Open the door and say, eat with me, Jesus. I'm messy, but eat with me. Change my life. Transform me. Grow me. You, you could be active in all the spiritual disciplines for the right reasons and responding to God's grace. You could be with his wor- in his word, with his people, with his spirit. Um, you, you could be serving, signing up, handing out a Bible, saying hello to someone, holding a baby, whatever things that need to be done, holding communion. You could be saying, sign me up. I want to serve. And you could be doing it consistently and the water is boiling. But oftentimes we got to realize you could be looking at other Christians and going, man, they're moving so fast. I feel like they're growing so much. And you, you know what? You can get weary. It can get frustrating. You can be doing all the right things and still hit a wall, right? Um, years ago, maybe right when we first got married, my wife and I, um, we, some friends of ours were kind of talking trash, and they were like, you couldn't beat, Holly, my, my wife runs a lot, and they're like, you couldn't beat her in a race. And I'm like, I could beat her in a race. And they were like, no, 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 not like a sprint, but like, like you know, like in a half marathon. And I knew I couldn't, but I was like, I can and they're like, prove it. Let's do a half marathon. I'm like, of course. And so I trained for this half marathon because of pride. 
And, uh, and so we're training and training and training. I'm telling you, I've never trained so hard for anything in my life because the last thing I was going to do is get beat by my wife in anything. And so I'm, I'm trying like crazy in this deal. And so we start off the marathon, and I said, hey, I'm going to run with you for the first few miles, and then I'm just going to probably leave you in the dust. And so we start running and whatnot, and then, and then we kind of went separate ways and whatnot. I stopped for water before she did, and, and we're, we're just gone. And I start to run. I tried to run as fast as I can, like just to just— just to book it. And when you're like a, a sprinter athlete, long distance is not what you should be doing, right? And so I go for, I don't know, it seemed like 13 miles, but the whole thing's 13 miles, so that's not what it was. And so I'm running as fast as I can, and then I hit a wall. I mean, like, it felt like a real wall. It was like God was like, uh-uh, right? All my muscles stopped. They started screaming, stop, stop. And I didn't because of pride, and I, I kept running. And you know what? I ended up finishing the race and everything, but it, it was horrible. Like, and I, would, I will never do that again. Hear me. If you ever hear me always training for a half marathon, a marathon, stop me. Say, hey, remember what you said. Never. The, the point in that story is no matter how hard I train, I still hit a wall. When it comes to your walk with Jesus, no matter how much you see God's grace, no matter how much you are doing spiritual disciplines, no matter how much you are serving, there's just moments in your life where you hit a wall. It's not because you're far from God or because God's far from you. There's just the walk of this spiritual life as we live in a world that's broken, that there will be moments in your life where it feels like it's an uphill battle because the reality of it is, it's an uphill battle. Take delight in those moments. My mom used to say this before I ever could really understand it. She goes, no, the mountaintop experiences are great, but they don't build your faith because you're so close to God, everything just seems real, and so you don't even really, really have to work at anything. It's, a, it's the desert moments. It's the valley moments. It's the moments where he feels far. Read through the Psalms, and you hear David say things like, how far are you, God? Like, where are you at? Like, how long are you going to let this happen? And then what is its response in all those Psalms? It's always, but nevertheless, I will continue in your steadfast love, meaning it is still about you. It's in the moments of desert where you begin to have doubts, but even in the midst of your doubts, there's a reality of faith. It's in the moment of desert where you have struggles, but in the midst of your struggles, you realize it's God's strength that's even given you the desire to want to struggle. And so no matter how hard you train, whatever you do, don't look at the people around you and go, wow, why am I running as fast as I am? It's not about speed. It's about your pace. It's about keeping your eyes focused on the author and the perfecter of your faith, who is Jesus, because you will finish the race. And not because of your appetite and not because of your want to, but because he who started good work in you will finish it into completion. And that's a promise. And whatever God wants, God gets. And he wants to eat with you. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants you to have zeal and passion for him. And if that's something that God wants, we can trust in his spirit, his empowering grace to get us there. Amen.